Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, the bizarre COVID situation in China right now. You've got Shanghai, a city of nearly 30 million people, locked down for a total of five weeks. And there's dozens of other cities around China that have had partial lockdowns. But the COVID cases and deaths in China are way lower than even ours here in Australia. And our population is less than 2% of China's. Now, the reason it's so strange is that for the last two years, the Chinese people have been living quite normally while parts of Australia and other parts of the world, the rest of the world basically, went in and out of lockdown. Now the tables have turned. So in this episode, we're going to speak to a Shanghai local from inside her apartment. And as you'll hear, she's sounding very depressed. I really hope it ends soon. It's been way too long. I just want like a clear date where I can go outside. Not something that's like, oh, you can maybe get out on this day and then you're still inside on this day. As well as that conversation with Sophia, we'll speak to a New York Times journal um, reporting on China for the bigger picture and how China gets out of this COVID zero situation. That's our briefing topic in the second half of this episode. First, today's headlines. It's Friday the 29th of April and I'm joined by Jan Fran. Well, he's been waiting a good seven days to get out of home quarantine. And finally, it's happening. Labor leader Anthony Albanese out of COVID ISO today, and he is back on the campaign trail. My medical advice that uh, I, I have is that I have to take it more slowly than I would normally coming back. Uh, no 16 to 20 hour days in the no. first week. Yeah, Anthony Albanese will go to Perth ahead of Labor's campaign launch there on Sunday. So it's... Not really the sort of vibe you want during election campaign. Is it Jan to be taking it easy? No, I think you want to be going really hard. But I mean, mm. the fact is, when you get COVID, some people are slapped down really badly and the body just just can't put up with those 16 to 20 hour days. Anthony Albanese seemed to be doing okay. But you know, when you're on the campaign trail and you're traveling and you're going from state to state and you're under this kind of high stress or you're working in this high stress and high pressure environment... It's like, you know what, if your body doesn't comply, you kind of do have to take it easy, which I imagine is the last thing he'd want to do right now. Yeah, totally. So while he's been in ISO, um, the cost of living issue has become increasingly dominant in the campaign. And that's after Wednesday's record inflation figures. Those costs of living are increases are real and we are taking action right now. Yeah, Prime Minister Scott Morrison there. Now, in the coalition's budget, they announced that the government is tackling this by halving the fuel excise for six months, so that's temporary. Um, they're also giving 10 million low- and middle-income earners a $1,500 tax offset, and they will be sending out a $250 payment to pensioners and concession card holders this week. So that's what they're doing to tackle cost of living. We've known that for a while. Labor, though, hasn't ruled out its own cash handout. We would weigh all of that up, do the right thing by the budget and the economy, and particularly by Australians. Yeah, so that's Jim Chalmers, the Treasury spokesperson. They're promising to drive wage growth, help families with childcare expenses, cut power bills by investing in cheaper and cleaner energy, and better regulate the gig economy. So both sides making slightly different pitches there for how they'll deal with this problem, which in many respects is outside their control. Inflation there's a number of reasons for it. We've talked about it a fair bit on this podcast. It's outside of Australia's control. 
oftentimes, not just the Labor and the coalition's control. And the second thing is rising interest rates is really something for the Reserve Bank. So just take it with a pinch of salt when you hear leaders of both major parties talking about keeping rates down and tackling cost of living. There's only so much they can do. And the US President Joe Biden wants to triple America's support for Ukraine. The cost of this fight uh, is not cheap. But caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. So Biden has asked Congress for $46.5 billion. Um, $30 billion will go to military equipment and the rest he has earmarked for humanitarian assistance. Um, now, this is in addition to last month when uh, US Congress approved $19.2 billion in assistance as well. The thing is that Biden says... Kiev has already used most of that $19.2 billion and that's why they need more money. And three Australian residents have accused the Church of Scientology of child trafficking, covering up sexual assaults and forced labour in a claim lodged in a Florida court overnight. Yeah, so Australian Gawain Baxter um, and residents Laura Baxter and Valeska Paris are seeking damages against Scientology leader David Miscavige and five church-related organisations for alleged human trafficking. Now, the three of them were part of Scientology's Sea Org and Cadet Org entities, and they basically signed these contracts for a billion years which just sounds mind-blowing, to provide free or cheap labour to Scientology. Yeah, so the lawsuit alleges they were paid $70 a week and that they endured years of emotional, physical and psychological abuse, mostly whilst aboard Scientology's Free Winds cruise ship in the Caribbean, where they worked for more than a decade. And Twitter users are already feeling the effects of Elon Musk's $61 billion takeover. There's some anecdotal observations happening on the site at the moment. Um, There appears that there could be a bit of a trend where some high-profile progressive accounts are losing hundreds of thousands of followers and others not so progressive gaining them. Yeah, so the former US President Barack Obama has shed 300,000 followers in 24 hours and Katy Perry, um, the third most followed account on Twitter, has lost 200,000. But conservatives or some of them at least, have seen the opposite effect. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, strongly against mask mandates and vaccine requirements, he gained nearly 100,000 followers, and Donald Trump Jr. gained 87,000 new followers in one day. We should say these sorts of fluctuations happen all the time. Sometimes they're bots, sometimes they're not. Uh, Twitter is looking into this, and they've said, look, We're going to investigate what's going on here. We reckon that the fluctuations are largely because people, actual people, actual users, are either creating new accounts or they're deactivating their existing ones. So there does seem to be some slight dissatisfaction on the platform with people leaving it, but also um, with new folks popping up as well. Yeah, but I guess everyone's kind of waiting to see if Twitter is going to swing more to the right because Elon Musk has basically implied that it's been too tough on people from the right and given progressives too much free reign. Yeah, Elon Musk says a lot of things though. Yesterday he (laughs) tweeted, next I'm buying Coca-Cola to put the cocaine back in, (laughs) which I'm going to assume is a joke, but one can never assume with this man. (laughs) Mm, I think it's a metaphor for Twitter. He's going to put the sort of spice back into it. I think it was spicy enough, but maybe I'm wrong. 
and South Australia, Tasmania and WA coming into line with the rest of the country and rolling back those COVID restrictions. Yeah, so the quarantine measures will be eased in South Australia tomorrow. That means close contacts and will no longer have to go through quarantine, although mask wearing will stay in place in South Australian high schools for another four weeks. Yeah, Western Australia scrapping its mask mandates and capacity limits from today, uh, as well as removing quarantine requirements for any close contacts who are asymptomatic. Tasmania will ease its close contact restrictions on Monday. That's already happened in the other states, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, ACT, Northern Territory, roll back most of those rules as well. And Jan, this comes right as we go into a briefing topic about China locking down tens of millions of its own citizens in its COVID zero approach, which is still going. So just uh, a mind-boggling difference in the way that we're treating COVID here compared to China, which we'll explore over the next 10 minutes or so and catch you Monday. All right, let's go to China, where daily COVID case numbers are around 18,000 a day. The death figure is creeping up. It's at around 50 a day at the moment, but until a week ago, it was mostly zero. Now, despite the fact these figures are very low compared to other countries, including here in Australia, the measures they're taking in China are extreme. So in Shanghai, which has now been locked down for five weeks, if you're in a building with a COVID case, you're in a hard lockdown where you can't even leave your apartment and your building is fenced off. You're relying on food deliveries coming to you. And in many areas, people have been left hungry and desperate. Now, if you are a confirmed symptomatic case, you're taken straight to a hospital or a quarantine facility. Plus, there's these SNAP localised tests where they test millions of people a day. Now, dozens of cities in China have been in some kind of lockdown over the last month. Um, In Beijing, there's been panic buying after mass testing was ordered in some parts of the city, but so far, they're not in a full lockdown. So Sophia is a second-year uni student. She's been in her Shanghai dorm room, stuck there basically, since the lockdown began at the start of April. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain what the experience of the last five weeks of lockdown in Shanghai has been like for you? Yes, so... Living in Shanghai during this period of time has been kind of surreal. It's something that we, nobody has been expecting. We were told, you know, that the lockdown would be four days and, well, it's been well over four days. There's like a lot of like moving parts at this point that we're now simply just waiting for news when this lockdown can be lifted because it's been tough with no food delivery available, nothing that we can get online. So I have to rely on my school to provide me the resources that I need, such as food um, and other necessities. Wow. So you've been going hungry sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. And are you living alone? Um, I live in the dorms. My roommate left the country recently. A lot of foreign students and a lot of people have been going back to their home country Right now, I live with my dog. And has it been lonely spending so much time on your own in your dorm room? It's been quite lonely. And every day that goes by, it feels a bit worse. But me, who like live in a compound without a singular positive case of COVID, 
with still no end in sight is sometimes disheartening and very lonely. Did you just say there that there's been no cases in your compound? Yes, there's no cases in my particular compound. And yet you're still completely locked inside your building. Can you go outside at all? Um, I can go downstairs and walk my dog just like on the downstairs. And what about testing? Have you had to do much COVID testing during this lockdown? Oh, there was a point in time where we had to get tested every day. It didn't make sense to me because, you know, if I didn't have it yesterday, I wouldn't have it today and I wouldn't have it tomorrow. How are you and your other friends there in Shanghai feeling about the situation? Because I'm speaking to you from Australia and in Sydney, we had several lockdowns throughout 2020 and 21. But this year, we're accepting that lots of people will catch COVID. How are you and your friends feeling about that? Uh, earlier in the pandemic, uh, when it first came, the original lockdown was not this serious. A lot of my friends told me, you know, they could still buy things from the store. And that lockdown lasted like one to two months. This time, a lot of people feel disheartened. A lot of people just want to leave this city. So where do you think it will go from here? Do you think China will change its strategy to be more similar to countries like ours where they accept more cases and allow people to move freely? Or do you think they'll continue trying to eradicate COVID? Living in China, I've learned that like a lot of people are scared of COVID. They're not like a lot of countries that had a lot of cases before and have a lot of people hospitalized due to COVID. Right now in Shanghai, this is the most cases of COVID China's ever had. Things will change, but I don't think the zero COVID policy will change. I think that as long as COVID exists, they're going to try to keep the same habits. And are many people complaining? Are there protests outside or online? Are many people complaining? And and do you get the sense that the authorities are clamping down on that? When you try to share specific links on social media or on WeChat, which is the app that we use in China for communications and other apps like Weibo, which is sort of like the Chinese Twitter, there are Things that circulate on there are people trying to get out of voice. But the biggest thing that I see is those posts will be up for maybe a few hours and then they're taken down and blocked. And sometimes a user is blocked from posting. And if you share those type of links frequently, then your WeChat account can get blocked and you have to do all sorts of verification to show that it's you and It's funny because we always know that there's a restriction on internet and stuff like that. This is like a time where you can really truly see that. There's a lot of ways that people are attempting to go around this block by discussing the situation in a different sense. They just change specific things in the wording so it doesn't get flagged by the operators that block the social media. They use different wording so it is allowed to um, go through. So that was Sophia, pretty candid for someone speaking to us from China. 
very interesting to hear about the way people are getting around the senses as well. Now, let's get the bigger picture from a New York Times reporter covering China from Taiwan. Her name is Amy Chin. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. What do you make of the situation in China right now? Well, it's certainly not surprising. China has maintained this zero COVID strategy from the beginning, and it's worked for them for the most part. They've been able to keep numbers down, both deaths and number of cases. But as we've seen the virus become more transmissible um, with the Omicron variant, we have seen that it's just harder and harder to contain. And the costs of these zero COVID strategies are going up. Uh, many people predicted at the beginning of the year that we were going to see a lot more lockdowns in China, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. So why are they taking this approach? Why haven't they learned the lessons of the rest of the world? China is taking this approach because, first of all, they say that it's difficult for, to move away from zero COVID right now because the elderly vaccination rate is not quite where it needs to be. There have been questions about uh, how effective the Chinese vaccines are as well. And so... From the beginning, they had this success uh, in controlling the virus. I think that people sort of got accustomed to it. There's still a lot of fear of the virus in China. It's not something, you know, I think that in the U.S. or in Australia, many people know others who've gotten infected. That's not the case in China. But can't they look at the cold, hard data and see that such a low number of people are, are dying from COVID? A low number of people might be dying from COVID, but it's on a relative scale. China is huge. If Even if you, you know, a small percentage of people die in China, that's still hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And so they're really worried about what would happen. So what impact are these lockdowns having on China? It's hugely disruptive to both society and the economy. You know, in Shanghai, for example, we saw a lot of manufacturers have to shut down all adding to the stress of the global supply chain and just society too. It's extremely disruptive. People are confined to their homes or unable to go out. They have to, you know, in many cases, continue to pay their bills. And so that's very stressful as well that you're, if you're not, you know, if you're on a salary job and you can't go to work, you still have to pay rent in one of the most expensive cities in the world, which is Shanghai. Deliveries have, in the case of Shanghai, were stopped. And so for many people, um, they were dealing with food shortages. They were unable to procure food. The government at some point started handing out food, but it was you know, very varied between um, neighborhoods, how, how much people got. They've been sort of scrambling and kind of coordinating with friends and neighbors. If you test positive, you'll be sent to one of these quarantine centers and you might have to sleep for days on end um, next to a stranger just at arm's length. And so it's extremely disruptive. More and more people are getting caught up in this dragnet. So where do you think it's going to go from here? They are actually seemingly being able to bring down case numbers. Uh, it was peaking at around 25,000. It's now slowly coming under 20,000 a day. Mm-hmm. Do they just keep slowly winding this down and locking up tens of millions of people for for weeks on end? Is that the only way this really ends or is there another possibility here? Well, I think that in the for, for the foreseeable future, we're not going to see them moving away from this zero COVID strategy. They've said that very clearly. In Shanghai, certainly you'll see numbers coming down and it is this sort of indefinite lockdown until they do get down to at least close to zero or at least to a point where they feel like they have it under control. We're already seeing them taking preemptive actions in Beijing. There were a few cases reported there and now they're doing mass testing in almost, I think, three quarters of the city. It's about 22 million people. And so 
Already we've seen them starting to experiment with shorter number of days in quarantine in some cities, down from 14 to 10. And so I think there is definitely concern and more and more respected people, economists, professors are speaking out about how disruptive this is and calling on the government to really think about how to implement an exit strategy. Are you talking about local people there speaking out against the government? Are we seeing in any way an unprecedented kind of reaction from Chinese people? We are. We've seen this both from, you know, average ordinary residents and also more prominent business people. You will remember that this is affecting Shanghai. Shanghai is the financial commercial beating heart of China. It's where many highly educated elites live and they haven't been spared in this as well. They've had to go and participate in these group buys and try to secure access to food. And so, you know, we are seeing in part because Shanghai is so much more connected to the world, but also just because of the degree of the food shortages that have happened there. We're seeing an unprecedented wave of discontent with the government. That was Amy Chin from the New York Times, and you can follow her on Twitter. Amy with two Y's, Chin spelled Q-I-N, Amy Chin. Really interesting to hear how they're dealing with this with China and very hard to see how they get out of this COVID zero situation. They're clearly not trusting their vaccines and not really taking those death figures into account. Although, as Amy said, if you know those small percentages were able to be extrapolated to a massive population getting COVID, maybe it would be really hard to manage. But for now, I guess we just keep on watching on, being thankful that we're in a different stage of what's now an endemic for us. All right, that's it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, of course, Jamila Rizvi will be in your feed tomorrow with the weekend briefing. Jamila, who have you got on this week? This weekend, I am chatting to someone you probably don't know the name of, but you are going to know her online moniker. April Helen Horten is the Bodzilla. That's what she's called on Instagram, on Facebook, on all the social medias. And she is absolutely amazing. She is a vocal advocate for racial, gender and size equality. And I particularly adore her for what she's doing in terms of revolutionising beauty standards in this country. She was the first plus size model to appear in a bikini as part of a major Australian advertising campaign. Of that experience, she said, I was the first fat chick on a billboard and I don't want to be the last. If you want some body positivity injected into your weekend, April's interview is the way to go. All right, get around that tomorrow at 7am. We'll be back Monday with your regular weekday briefing. Have a great weekend. Listener.